This is Mandite and the Apprentice Mage, Book One of the Mandite Chronicles, written and narrated by Stu Venable. Chapter Six. I needed to make arrangements before we could leave for Eldamy. I sought out my landlady and paid her three months' rent for my rooms, which she happily accepted. My landlady, her name was Abigail Blackstone, was a young woman. Her father had been a pirate captain. Nearly eight years prior, he was killed attempting to take a ducal ship headed south. The mission was successful, and the remaining crew dutifully brought Abigail her father's portion of the prize, or at least the portion they said was his. This made Abigail Blackstone perhaps the richest woman on Ekota Isle. She used this money to purchase several properties, including my rooms and three other such homes. She also purchased the tavern and the restaurant across the street from where I lived, as well as the warehouse near the harbor. Abigail Blackstone was a woman who knew how to turn her windfall into even more wealth, and that made her a very attractive woman to the men of Ekota Isle. She was also an intelligent woman and very pretty. Her hair was black, long and luxurious, gentle curls and waves framing her young, sun-kissed face. Her eyes were a deep, dark brown. She wore a bodice and skirts, attractively framing her young and fit body, but still maintaining modesty. Had she been a woman of high birth, I suspected she would have the delicate pale skin of a lady of leisure, contrasting with her dark hair and eyes, but the sun had tanned her face, neck, and the portions of her bosom the bodice revealed. In Eldamy, she would have been marked as a farm worker with that tan, but no one there would call her unattractive, even the most high-born lord. I had been told that she had turned down no less than twenty proposals of marriage, including my own, but that had been after many hours of drinking and revelry with a pirate crew enjoying their shore leave. Abigail stared at the dozen or so silver coins in her small, pretty hand and frowned at me. Three months' rent,' she said. "'Just where are you going?' "'I need to take a trip to the city of Eldamy. I have pressing business there. I'm not sure when I will return,' I explained. "'Well, what if you don't come back?' she asked. "'That's why I came here in person. I have many possessions in my rooms, some quite valuable.' I was hoping I could compensate you to move them to some place safe and store them until my return, I explained. I hope I will return within three months, but if I don't, I can pay you to store my possessions. Indefinitely, I hope, I explained. How much to do that? she asked. She had a reputation for having a good mind for business, and she was not shy about making sure she profited from each and every venture. She was hot. I happen to have three gold coins, struck in Eldamy itself, that should easily pay for laborers to move my possessions to your warehouse and pay to keep them there for a year or more, and there should be enough left over to afford someone to watch over them at night, I said. I can hold them there for a year and six months, if that pleases you, she said. It would please me well, Mistress Blackstone, I said, smiling. Should I return within three months, you can keep the gold coins and apply them toward my rents. Should I return after that, but before a year and six months hence, 
you may keep the balance for your trouble. That is a fair trade, Master Mandite, she said. It was far more than a fair trade. I was extremely generous on my part, and she knew it. Very well, I said. Mandite, she started. Why are you going to Eldamy? There was concern in her voice, but only a little. She was very good at being, or at least seeming, concerned, and that was one of the most enchanting things about her. She had that intangible talent of making people, especially men, feel special and valued. It was a magic all its own. I have business there. I may not return for some time. I'm not exactly welcome there, and I may be jailed if the wrong people find me, I sighed. Not welcome, she repeated. I thought you were banished, told never to set foot there again. True, but the business to which I must attend is urgent and quite necessary, I said. Should I not return within a year and six months, I would ask that you offer my possessions to Minister Greybeard. He is a good man, and will allow me to buy them back at a fair price. I shall do so, Mandite, though I hope you shall return before that is necessary, she said. While her words seemed kind, her tone was nothing but businesslike. This is why I had never proposed to Mistress Blackstone sober. So do I, Mistress Blackstone, so do I, I said. It didn't take me long to find a ship bound for the city of Eldamy. It was called the Scarab. It was a ten-ton vessel, not overly large, but large enough for a comfortable journey. She had four rooms below decks, and I was able to secure one of them. I met with the quartermaster, Jacob de Gen, and paid him for passage for myself and my apprentice. Jacob de Gen was known to many of the inhabitants of Ikota Isle. Like most quartermasters, he had a good mind for numbers and logistics. He was a few inches shorter than I, so some might call him short. But he had more weight on him than was healthy, but he carried it well. The hair on the top of his head was sparse, but what remained was brown and curly. One might have called his face cherubic, but for several pockmarked scars that dotted his cheeks and nose. He was shirtless, which was common for sailors in this climate, and his breeches, no doubt taken from some ducal naval officer, were made from dark-dyed velvet. Over his left upper chest was a scar of a burn in the shape of a cross. So he had been captured and jailed once. If he were caught again with that scar, he would be dead, hanged as an unrepentant pirate. Jacob was a serious man, like most quartermasters, as the mantle of authority weighed heavily on them. Unless in battle, the quartermaster, not the captain, was in charge of the ship. It was his duty to make sure the ship's stores were well maintained, and he held the final word regarding where the ship was to sail and what prizes she would attempt to take. The quartermaster was also responsible for distributing any treasure captured from a prize. In short, the quartermaster was the business manager of the ship, and the only time he wasn't in charge was during battle. "'I hear tell that you ain't wanted an elder me, Master Mage,' Jacob said as I paid him. "'You have heard right, Jacob. I am not welcome in Eldamy.' "'Why does everyone know my business?' I asked. "'Tis not a large city, Master Mage. Word travels,' he said sheepishly. "'You know,' he started reluctantly, "'we might just get into hot water for even just taking you there.' I sighed. Everyone was getting their hands in my coin purse, first my landlady and now this quartermaster.' 
"'I can pay a hazard fee if you feel it is necessary,' I said reluctantly. "'No extra fee necessary, but I wonder if I might ask you a favor, Master Mendite,' Jacob said slyly. "'What's that?' I asked. "'Well, there's a ship what makes a trip from near Highfall Ruins to Eldamy and then on to Ikoda Smirt. Large ship, few guns.' She carries sundry wares, textiles, food, and the like. Some coin, Jacob started. And what does this have to do with me? I asked. Well, we've been meaning to capture that ship as a prize, seeing that we'll have a mage on board that might even the odds, if you get my meaning, he said. And it would compensate for the risk of taking you where you ain't supposed to go. I looked at Jacob flatly. "'I suppose I could provide some support,' I said, feigning consideration. "'But I would want something for that risk.' "'If it's fair, I'll allow it,' Jacob said, with the authority only a quartermaster could wield. First pick of the prize, four items,' I said. Three items, and I can deny them,' he countered. Two items, and you don't get to deny them,' I countered. "'You can't have the ship.' he said quickly. No intention of asking for it, I replied. He spat in his left hand and extended it. I repeated the gesture, and we shook on it. Pirates adopted the tradition of shaking with their left hands. Non-pirates insisted it was so they could stab each other in the back. I had no earthly idea if that was true or not. But I had known many pirates and engaged in business arrangements with them many times. I had never once been backstabbed for my trouble." "'We leave on the morrow, before the second bell,' Jacob said. "'When is the second bell?' I asked. Two hours past dawn. The first bell is rung at dawn, and it's rung every two hours thereafter,' he explained patiently. I nodded and left. I went back to my rooms to prepare for the voyage. Jass was sitting at the supper-table, going over her copy of the Xavier Birdstaff text. I walked into the library and selected two more small volumes to take on the voyage.' One detailed the force of magic, which was something all mages needed to learn. The second was a small volume on the force of fire. While it hadn't helped me hone my skills, it might have been of use to Jass. She looked up as I entered. "'What's the city of Eldamy like?' she asked. "'For you, I would use the term vast,' I said. "'This place here would be considered a hamlet compared to Eldamy.' There are thousands of tradesmen of every kind. Blacksmiths, tinkers, dressmakers, brewers, tanners, soapmakers, butchers. You name the trade, and there will be a dozen plying it in the city of Eldamy. No one knows what the population is there, but it is probably a hundred times greater than here, maybe more. It's so big that only a portion of the city is within the city walls, and that portion is five or six times larger than our city here. Craftsmen, farmers, and the like have built their own homes and places of business outside the city walls. There are probably ten times as many people living outside the walls than live within. She looked at me with disbelief. And you can get anything there, I continued. This table right here came from Eldamy. The finest furniture makers in the duchy are in that city. Any kind of food you can think of is available there. Most things that weren't built here came from Eldamy. Hell, 
every ship that weighs anchor here in our port, was built in that city. Whoa, she whispered. I laughed. For someone who has only known an island life, the great city of Eldamy will make your head spin, Jas, I went on. But you have to keep your head. There are thieves, crooked shopkeepers, cut purses, and much worse. If it exists in the world, it exists in Eldamy. Jas continued her studies as we ate our supper, which I paid for our landlady to send over. We have an early morning tomorrow. The scarab leaves two hours past dawn. Go to bed, and I shall wake you at dawn, I said, standing to make my way to my own bedchamber. I had set a spell to wake me just before dawn, and I woke Jas soon thereafter. Before we made our way to the scarab, I said to Jas, I need to place one more enchantment here. You may observe if you like, or you can go ahead to the scarab. She stayed, watching me intently. The working took the better part of an hour, but in the end it was successful. Whoa! Jas exclaimed. The door's gone! She shouted. Shh! Not so loud! I said, looking around, though there was no one yet on the walkways. The door is still there, and anyone intimately familiar with these rooms will see it. The landlady, for example. But I live here and I can't see it, she said. But you only lived here for a week or so. I've lived here for years, I explained. It won't hold up to much scrutiny, but it is sufficient to stop any potential burglars. How long will it last? she asked. Mm, hard to say. Months, most likely. Perhaps a year, I said as I gathered our things together. Let's go. Chapter 7 We were the only passengers booked aboard the Scarab, most people on Ikota Isle either lived here or were visiting pirates. Few people actually traveled. When we arrived at the dock, the scarab had been transformed. She had been a place of chaos and clutter when I booked passage, but now everything was in its place. Several crewmen sat ready up in the vessel's rigging. The clutter of barrels and crates that had scattered the deck was now stowed below. Even the deck had been scrubbed. The crew was still shirtless, of course, except for the quartermaster, Jacob. He wore a vertically striped shirt of white and red, making him stand out among the crew. As we arrived, he was barking orders, peppered with profanity. Though I'd only been on ships a few times, I did know the protocol. I stood at the bottom of the gangway and called up, "'Permission to come aboard!' Jacob looked startled, but gave me the proper reply. Permission granted. Master Mendite, welcome aboard, Jacob said in greeting once we were on the deck. This must be your apprentice. Yes, this is my apprentice, Jas. Jas, this is Jacob Degen, quartermaster of the Scarab, I said by way of introduction. Pleased to meet you, Master Degen, Jas said formally. It was strange that a girl who'd spent so much time eking out a most humble and modest existence on the most distant of the Far Isles, would be so well-versed in such formality. I was starting to wonder if she might have been high-born. Jacob personally showed us to our cabin, which was small, though it had a bunk bed. There was a small writing desk and a single chair, and that was the extent of our amenities. The first week of our voyage aboard the Scarab was uneventful and pleasant. The cook, whom I was told was rescued 
from a ship of the Duke's fleet, was very talented. He insisted that Jacob, as quartermaster, maintain a supply of spices and seasonings, and everyone was grateful for it. We ate few of the provisions Jacob had brought on board, as I was able to coax fish to the water's surface using a combination of the water and body forces, and the crew happily caught them. As a result, we had fresh fish for most evening meals. I was able to coax a sea turtle to the surface one evening, but the crew refused to bring it aboard. They said it was bad luck to eat sea turtle while at sea. Even the breakfast porridge was a delight. The cook seasoned it with dried salted pork and a few other spices he refused to divulge. On the eighth day, there was a knock on our cabin door. It was Kedal, the tall, dark-skinned gunnery master. He was nearly a head taller than I. He had a broad, scarred chest. Like the rest of the crew, he eschewed the use of shirts. His scars were ragged and savage, and each must have been an, an excruciating ordeal. This was a man of labor. His arms were thick and tight with muscle, and the sight of his chest would have made any high-born lady swoon. The hair on his head was black and tightly curled, though cropped short, as is the fashion with most sailors. His face was unshaven, though I suspected he'd shaved on his last night ashore on Ekota Isle. His eyes were dark and serious, and he walked with the kind of authority that would make most men follow him. "'Ah! Master Cadal, come in!' "'To what do we owe the pleasure?' I said with irony. Cadal had not spoken more than eight words to me on the voyage so far, and most of the time that was, "'Move! Or go away!' "'Come on deck!' he said, and he turned and walked away. He had the accent of a southerner, someone from the regions far south of the ruins of Highfall. I shrugged at Jass and motioned for her to follow me. She got up from the little writing desk in our stateroom. She had long finished copying her first text and was now ready to begin some rudimentary callings. But I was going to wait until we were on land. Having an apprentice mage experiment on a ship in the middle of the ocean was unwise. To keep her mind occupied, I presented her with a text on the force of magic, Magicum and its Uses, by Tador Krumen. The original text was more than a century old, but it was by far the best treatise on the force of magic. When we emerged from below, I saw Kidal climbing the ladder to the aft deck, so we followed. There, standing before us, was the captain, who I had not even seen on the voyage thus far, though I knew him by reputation. Kidal gave him a nod and a salute, and said, Captain. Master Mandite, and Apprentice Jess, come up, please, the captain said. I am Captain Nicholas Taller. Welcome aboard. A bit late for welcomes, but my time has been consumed with other matters. So my apologies, he said with a deep lyric voice. Unlike the rest of the crew, he wore a shirt, and over that a black and blue doublet. This was no captured garment. This was made for Captain Taller as there were no cuts nor slashes on it, and it fit him well. He was about my height, my height being average, and he had a serious face, much like most quartermasters I'd met. His head was clean-shaven, and he had a short but well-groomed gray beard. When he spoke, I wondered if he had once been an officer in the Duke's Navy. That's where many pirate captains come from. Because pirate captains only took command during combat— 
they had to be well trained in naval tactics, and the only people who learned that were naval captains. I wondered what had made this naval officer turn to a life of piracy. No need, Captain Towler. It is a pleasure. I know you by reputation. That's why I sought out your vessel, I replied. That wasn't entirely true. I'd heard he was a competent captain, but I was just looking for the next ship leaving for Eldamy. "'That's very kind of you, Master Mage,' he said. "'You know our gunnery master, Cadal?' "'Yes, we've had many a pleasant conversation,' I said. Cadal scowled, and the captain smiled. "'Indeed,' he said with a wink. "'We are within sight of Tremble Isle, just on the horizon to the larboard.' "'Which one is that?' I asked. "'The left,' he explained patiently. I looked to the left of the bow and could see a small, jagged shape silhouetted in the morning sun. "'We shall hide and wait in the harbor there. That will conceal us as the prize approaches,' he said. Then he gestured to a small table behind the helm. We walked to it, and there lay a detailed map of the sea to the west of Eldamy. It was under a pane of perfectly formed glass, which was set into a wooden frame with hinges on one side and a hasp on the other. The map showed the island, and I could clearly make out the harbor he'd mentioned. "'She's still at least a day out, but Cadal can fill you in on the details. Then you can suggest what your part in this venture might be,' he said cautiously. "'We've never worked with a mage before, so we're not quite sure what you're capable of,' he said, looking hard at Cadal. "'Cadal, tell him what he needs to know.' Kidal nodded. The captain excused himself and returned to the helm, where another crewman I hadn't even noticed guided the scarab. Kidal didn't even really acknowledge my existence when he began speaking. She'll approach from the north, usually on the east side of the isle, he started. She'll be at full sail when she makes her tack into the harbor. Then they'll strike sails. They usually use their momentum to get into the harbor. It's small and hard to navigate at speed. Is that where the attack will take place? I asked. No attack, he said sternly. We'll be at the eastern edge of the harbor. She won't see us on account of the terrain. Then we'll raise our colors and hail them with a lantern. You won't fire immediately, I asked. Cadal looked at me coldly. No, we won't. Cannon damages cargo, kills hostages, sinks ships. We only do that if they choose to run, or fight, which they seldom do, if we're doing our job right, he explained. Right, warn them first. So what's my part? I asked. That depends on what you can do, mage, he said. He'd use the word mage as if it was a curse. That offended me. Well, I'm good with air and water, and the mind, I said ominously. Before I knew it, Kadal held a dagger to my throat. His eyes narrowed. You try it, mage, and I'll slit your throat, he growled. Kadal, I heard the captain say. Kadal withdrew the dagger with a scowl, but he didn't sheathe it. Can you turn the bow of the ship toward the west? That'll put her face in the westerly winds. Even if she gets her sails up, she won't be able to maneuver much, and that takes her larboard cannons out of play, he said. 
Yes, I can do that. I'll need to be out on the water to create that much force. I'll need a small boat or something. And we'll need to lash it somehow to the scarab. On the side facing the prize, I said. He frowned. Why is that? Well, I began, I'll be, for lack of a better term, pushing the water at the bow of the prize. Without something substantial at my back, the water that deplaces that water I push will just push me in the opposite direction. That will make it much harder to maintain the spell long enough to turn the prize. I saw his eyes narrow as he began to understand the mechanics of what I was going to do. Finally, he said, I see. We can arrange to lash the launch to the side. I'll get the carpenters working on it. Thank you, I said. Clearly, Kadal didn't like me, so I figured being polite might change that, at least in some small way. But that will also put you in the line of fire, should there be an exchange, he added with a menacing grin. Only once before had I been on a ship during a sea battle. It was, and I do not say this lightly, the most terrifying experience of my life. I couldn't imagine experiencing that on a little rowboat stuck between the gun ports on the fighting side of the ship. That doesn't sound pleasant, I said. Kidal smiled. But I see no other choice, I added. Kidal's smile was replaced with an expression of confusion, which lasted only a moment and was quickly replaced with cold contempt. Once we concluded our planning, Jass and I left the bridge. That evening, while in our stateroom, I heard Jass get up and leave. It certainly wasn't time yet, as I could feel the bucking motion of the ship as it sailed toward the harbor of Tremble Isle. I waited until her footsteps faded away and quietly got up to follow her. I was a step or two from emerging on the deck of the scarab when I heard her voice and the deep voice of a man. It was Kidal. "'Why are you up here?' I heard him ask Jass. "'I wanted to ask you a question, Master Cadal,' she said with trepidation. "'About the plan? Is there a problem?' he asked. "'No, not that. I want to know what happened between you and Mandite. Why is there bad blood? Why do you hate him so?' she asked. I was surprised. I'd clearly sensed his disdain for me, but hadn't wondered much about it. There were more pressing matters. "'I do not hate him,' Cadal replied." "'But you put a blade to his throat. "'You clearly revel in the fact that this plan will put him in danger. "'Why?' she pressed. "'There was a long silence, "'and I thought about peeking onto the deck "'to see if I could get a glimpse of his expression. "'But I chose to remain hidden. "'I have only known a few mages in my days, young miss, "'and I must say such encounters have been less than pleasant,' he said. "'But you only just met Mandite!' she said. True, but he strikes me as typical of his sort, he replied. He is the only mage I've ever met, she admitted, but I don't understand. I heard him sigh, and it sounded like he sat down on something. I quietly sat down on the stairs. This was going to be a long conversation, and I wanted to hear it. Yes, I know eavesdropping is rude, but I was about to go into a dangerous situation with this man, and I wanted to see where I stood. I was born in a land far from here, young miss, he started. I had to stifle a sigh. This was going to be a very long conversation. When I was young, much younger than you are now, a mage from Eldamy came to our city. My father was an armorer, and this mage needed repairs to his retainer's armor. 
There had been a fight, and the armor needed mending. I was there watching, and my father gave him a price. The maid said it was too high and tried to haggle the price down. But the price my father offered was fair. I knew that much, even as a child, Kidal said. The mage then threatened my father, saying he would do terrible things if he did not do it for less. My father refused and told the mage to do his worse. Then the mage asked if he could do a cheaper repair. Not take as much time or use cheaper material, he continued. My father said he could, but the armor would not be as strong, that it might be too brittle, and the repairs might shatter in battle. The mage said that was fine with him. After he left, my father said, Never trust a man who does not respect those who protect his life, for his life means more to him than anything else. This is the sign of a coward, Kadal concluded. But that was just one mage. Surely it isn't fair to judge all by the actions of one, Jas said. That is both true and wise, young miss, but I have met other mages. I have met several, in fact, and each has been more concerned with their own well-being than anything else, Kadal said. In fact, he continued, each has been selfish and proud. Each has been greedy and deceptive. I have been swindled by many mages, and even worked for one as his bodyguard, and saw for myself how little they care for those who serve them, no matter how loyal. Well, Mandite is proud, to be sure, Jas mused. I frowned. How dare she? But, she continued, he is very generous. He took me in, he clothed me, he feeds me. He put a roof over my head. And what does he ask in return? Kidal asked with suspicion. Nothing like that, she exclaimed. Oh, Kidal said with surprise. Then how do you repay him? I cook for him. I clean, sometimes. Mostly he makes me study. He's got me copying books. He says that's the best way for me to learn, she said. And when he weaves his magic, he explains to me what he's doing and how and why. He gives me so much food, shelter, knowledge, and asks for very little in return. That seems neither greedy nor selfish, she concluded. Perhaps you are right, young miss, or perhaps mages treat their students differently than others. Perhaps they fear you may one day hex him if he doesn't treat you well, Kidal countered. Perhaps, but from all I've seen, he's a kind and generous man, she said. I felt a pang of guilt. It was clear that I was not as good of a man as she thought I was. When I brought her in, I was thinking more about the prospects of a free housemaid than teaching her. "'We shall see what he is made of later tonight,' Kidal countered. "'I think we shall,' she said quietly. "'I do not hold such disdain for you, young miss,' he hastened to say. "'I hope that once you become fully trained, you remain the way you are.' You certainly show loyalty and compassion, and bravery. Bravery? she asked. Oh, yes. There are not many young girls who would confront a scary pirate to defend her teacher, he growled. You don't seem that scary to me, she replied. I stifled a laugh. Go to bed. I have much to prepare. And with that, he stalked away. I rushed as quietly as I could back to our room. But I wasn't quite quick enough. 
Jas opened the door before I could crawl back into bed. "'Master Mandite, you're up,' she said, startled. "'Oh, yes,' I stammered. "'I was wondering where you got off to. "'It's time to begin preparations.' "'What kind of preparations?' she asked. "'Not so much preparations,' I lied. "'But I want you to understand what I'm going to do "'and how I'm going to do it.' "'She sat on her bed and looked at me intently. "'She would make a good apprentice, "'perhaps better than I deserved, "'which quickly became clear.' After I explained the mechanics of the spell I was going to use to turn the prize away from us, rendering its cannons useless, Jast asked me an uncomfortable question. "'Master Mandite,' she started, "'you're about to use the art to help these pirates to take and loot that ship. "'How does that fit in with the code of conduct of the Collegium?' she asked. "'Damn it,' I thought." This was not the kind of ethical question I wanted to answer right now. Here's the thing. I needed to get to Eldamy. There was a dark mage there who was kidnapping people, and after our research we discovered it was very likely Marwileth the Necromancer. The very same necromancer who tried to usurp the Duke of Eldamy, who tried to take over the only great nation I knew. This was a time when the ends justified the means, and the Collegium Code didn't have much room for that. "'You need to look at proportions, Jas,' I started. "'Using the art to help a pirate ship capture another ship is wrong, certainly. "'But why are we doing it?' "'To defeat Marleth,' she said, somewhat crestfallen. "'Exactly. Which is the greater wrong? "'Helping these pirates capture a ship? "'Or Marleth doing whatever he's planned?' I asked." Marwileth, she said. Who knows what he has planned? He's already taken my mother, I winced. He hadn't just taken Jass's mother. He'd very likely turned her into a soldier of his undead army. If history was any indication. Just so, Jass, I said. And if we have to break a few rules to get to him, isn't that worth it? I guess so, she started. Then she showed something I had not seen in her before. I had seen kindness and empathy, but I had not seen this, morality. "'If we break the rules that make us better than him,' she said, "'are we really better than him?' "'Damn this girl and her insight,' I thought. "'Your observation is certainly true on some level,' I sighed. "'Following the code is one thing that distinguishes us from Marwileth.' "'But there are even more important differences,' I said. "'Such as?' she asked, eyeing me cautiously. "'Marwileth is using his magic to heinous ends. "'It's not simply helping pirates steal things. "'It's perverting life itself. "'That cannot stand,' I said. "'She thought about this for a while. "'I watched her as she reasoned out our conundrum. "'I suppose that's an even more important difference "'between Marwileth and us,' she said. If you would like to find out more about my writing, go to stewvenable.com.